Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica. I'm your host, Alok Jha. This week we're talking all about penguins with Ruth PC. Ruth worked with the BBC for over 10 years on series including Natural World, Spring Watch, Life in the Air and Planet Earth 2. In her spare time, she started documenting the issues surrounding bird persecution in the Mediterranean, which led to a series of projects called Massacre on Migration. She now specialises in investigating conservation issues all over the world, using videos and social media to shine light on areas of concern. In 2017, Ruth won Birdwatch magazine's Conservation Hero Award for her work. She confesses that she's mildly obsessed with penguins and spent a whole breeding season living with a colony of Gentoo penguins at the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's base at Port Lockroy. Ruth, welcome. Penguins. We're here to talk to you about penguins. Penguins are, I mean, for many people, a symbol for Antarctica. It's the thing they think of when they think of the continent um, and the surrounding uh, waters. Just give us a bit of a history of these birds. Where, Where did these birds come from? How did they end up on Antarctica? So these birds were, so penguins were originally found all over the world, effectively. You had these big, large, flightless birds that were all in one continent. This species is millions of years old, not necessarily the species, the specific species that we've got here today, but the kind of genre of penguins, so to speak, um, are millions of years old. They were found everywhere. And as the continents have drifted apart, they've found themselves in Antarctica. And the reason primarily that they're in the places where they're found today is because of the cold currents that surround the areas where they are. So they're only found in the southern hemisphere. They're found, um, funnily enough, as far north as the equator regions. But in the equator where they're found, it's because of the cold water around them. And that provides great feeding grounds for them. Um, But also in Antarctica, they found themselves in a place where there aren't any land predators. Um, So that's a key thing for a flightless bird that can't get away. If you've got a fox or something that comes along to try and predate it, typically most birds will fly away to evade predation, but penguins don't have that option. And so they've had to um, sort of evolve and exist only where there aren't really land predators or natural land predators for them. So these flightless birds have evolved from birds that used to be able to fly, what one assumes, um, millions of years ago. Um, what 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 um what kinds of um, species were there in the past that we might take note of that don't exist today? Um, so in the northern hemisphere, you've got something uh, called the great orc, which is quite a 
Um, it's, it's typically known as the penguin of the north, and these orc species are still known as penguins of the north. These are um, birds that in the UK we might be familiar as seeing um, razorbills or guillemots. But um, much further north, you've got things like little orcs, which basically look like penguins but can fly and are really tiny. And until probably just over 100 or so years ago, there was um, a giant one of these birds called the giant orc and um or the great orc i should say and um unfortunately that was hunted out now in new zealand and australia which is where our kind of the penguin species that we're all sort of fairly familiar with whether that's on tv or through um documentation from the antarctic heritage trust or anybody else who spent time in antarctica um these came from species, giant, really giant species that were more than five, five foot tall. They've just found new fossil records of these birds. And I was fortunate enough to visit a university in Dunedin um, last year for the Penguin Conference and I actually saw one of these uh, skeletons myself. And it, they really are enormous. Absolutely A five enormous. foot penguin. A five foot penguin. Yes. What is, is that terrifying or is it just still quite cute? Oh, I, personally, I still look back to the time when I saw my first ever penguin, which was the same height as me. And I was four at the time and I saw the penguins at Edinburgh Zoo and I loved them. So the idea of going out and finding a penguin that's the same height as me now would bring me so much joy. I can't even tell you. Moving to modern times then, what kinds of penguins um, live on the continent and the surrounding waters today? Just give us a, a bit of a, a guide. So um, talking about Antarctic penguins specifically here, um, the penguins that you find there are the, you've got the, the kind of royal penguins. So they are the emperor penguin, which is found entirely exclusively on Antarctica continent, continent Maine. And then you've got the king penguins, which um, aren't found on the continent themselves, but they're found in sub-Antarctic islands. So they're still within the same kind of region of Antarctica. And then also within the continent, you've got Adelie penguins, which until very recently were thought to breed exclusively on the continent, but they've now found populations on some of the islands just off. You've got chinstrap penguins and gentoo penguins. You've also got penguins with great yellow yellow tufts on their head, which a lot of people love and think give them great characteristics. And the, the most common ones found in Antarctic waters are macaroni penguins. Just slightly further out, you've got rock hoppers as well. So there's quite a lot of penguins that are found in and around Antarctic waters. And, and they live in, what, what kind of life do, uh, are they living? I mean, are they living in, they live in huge colonies, we know that much. Um, what do they eat? So all of the Antarctic species do live in huge colonies, which is amazing, um, as you say. And most of them feed, at least to some extent, on krill, which is kind of the very keystone species in Antarctica. It's a tiny shrimp-like um, creature, which is probably a couple, only a couple of inches long. Um, it looks like it really does look like a little prawn and these are found under sea ice in great concentrations which is why you get um, a lot of penguins in Antarctica. Now penguins um, have lived for a long time um, in, in these waters um, as you've said already 
Um, and in fact, um, you've you've lived with a colony of them, uh, Gen Two penguins at Port Lockroy. Um, and interestingly, Port Lockroy, the base, the, the the base in Antarctica, there was was chosen as a site because there were no penguins. But now it's actually a famous colony um, where where you've been. Um, tell us what it was like to visit. So, to visit Port Lockroy, you definitely smell it before you land, and this is true with any penguin colony kind of a mile away you start to get this amazing incredible smell which I really do think is called eau de krill. it just smells of kind of well it does smell of krill there's no and, and it's really hard it's kind of a fishy smell if you've ever been to a zoo and you've walked past the penguin enclosure you know you've been there and that smell is exactly the same wherever you are in the world where there are penguins it's just where there are thousands of penguins that smell is incredibly intense and as I say you can smell it at least a mile away and that's not an exaggeration at all. Is it a unique smell? Definitely I've never smelled anything else like it. You're being very careful careful not to say whether it's a good or a bad smell. (laughs) Well that's because for me personally I love it. Um, It smells um, are kind of very evocative and I think they're very you, you attach smells perhaps more than any other sense to memories and for me a smell will always remind me of those penguins and being at Port Lockroy. And so for me, if I ever smell a penguin, I absolutely love it. I, I had no problem with my clothes smelling of penguins, of everything smelling of penguins. However, I've spent a lot of time with other people who perhaps don't share my um, semi-unique passion for that scent. So you smell you smell the penguins from afar. And then what, what was it like when you got there? So you get there and... You get this noise and it's kind of like a braying noise that fills the air. So in Dutch, the word for gentoo translates as donkey penguin. And that's basically because of this braying call that they give off. Um, And you can hear that and you're immediately surrounded by by this sound and the smell. And you just look to your left and you look to your right and there are just penguins everywhere. And they're constantly calling, they're very vocal. And um, when we first arrived, um, there was still snow and ice everywhere. So the penguins hadn't yet started to breed when we first got there. And this is amazing because we first, we actually got there just as all the penguins were coming ashore for the first time that year, which is, a pretty remarkable thing. So um, every year the penguins breed and they breed from kind of late November through to March and then they all head off to sea to feed. And then the winter they might pop back in small numbers but at the start of the breeding season they all come ashore. When they're at sea they're they're feeding in numbers of a couple of hundred at a time in these um, things called rafts. They're, they're not actually physically attached to each other, but they're swimming so closely together that it kind of looks like a raft of penguins, and that's to evade predation. And basically, what happens is they all these birds come ashore at the same time. And they all follow the same path. They'll walk for a couple of miles along the ice and snow to get to their breeding grounds. And just everywhere you look, you can just hear this like pitter patter, pitter patter, pitter patter, bray bray, pitter patter, pitter patter, bray bray, and it's just. And, and kind of a bit of a honk and occasionally there's a bit of a, a pooping sound and it's a classic cartoon pooping sound as they stop to 
um, force some uh, some of their guano out. And I, I know that's quite a, a grim thing to talk about, but it, you really have to get to grips with guano if you're talking about penguins and being in that colony. We followed these penguins all the way back to their breeding ground. And this is all around the base at Port Lockroy. And so everywhere you looked, you had these pairs sort of reforming. You could see them bowing to each other and kind of calling like, and almost like a purr call towards each other. And then they would do this big bray, um, which is known as an ecstatic call. And this went on and on and on, and they were really forming their bonds. And then um, the, uh, the snow started to melt. And as the snow melted, you could see the areas where there had been pebbles previously. And this is where they start to build their nests. So they start to bring the stones in, but they're really waiting for that layer of snow to melt before they start to breed. I have an interesting story about um, penguin guano, which, which, you may, which you may know already, but I'll share it anyway, which is, the, I think, back in something like uh, 2005, uh, 15, uh, 15 years ago now, um, uh, some Hungarian scientists uh, won the Ig Nobel Prize for fluid dynamics. Um, yes. I, I, I think you might know the story already because I can tell <laughs> you're, you're already <laughs> laughing. It's uh, they won the Ig Nobel Prize for fluid dynamics because they worked oh. out how the penguins, uh, I think it was Gen 2 penguins, in fact, created the um, guano displays within their nests. So they've got all these, dis if you look inside one of these nests, there's displays of guano all over the walls. And um, they do it because um, they just essentially point their bottoms towards the wall in various ways and, and spray this guano all over the place. And that's, that's their home nest. And uh, these Hungarian scientists worked out exactly how it was that the penguins built up the pressure of the fluid inside them and worked out the physics of it all, which I, uh, which I quite like as a former physicist myself. <laughs> Did you see any of these uh, penguin displays of, of guano? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So as soon as the snow melts, you've got these little piles of stones everywhere. And each of these piles of stones is roughly a metre space from each other. So penguins, I have to say, have been practising social distancing long before we coined it as a thing here. Um, so they've got these nests and they're like little volcanoes, as I say. They're made up of all these pebbles and that's to provide drainage for the penguins' uh, eggs and, and later on chicks. And basically, the thing that makes them the most volcano-like is exactly, as you say, this guano that's been spread out around the edge. It kind of looks like a star, the way they sort of splurt it away. And sometimes they'll catch their neighbours with it too, and that's always quite exciting because then they get a little bit feisty. So just moving on from penguin uh, penguin guano, uh, <laughs> what what was the purpose of your visit there? When you went to see, did you were you um, there to sort of meet scientists who were studying these these colonies? And what else, what was going on there? So I went to Port Lockroy originally back in two thousand and thirteen um, for the season in order to make a documentary called Penguin Post Office for the BBC's Natural History Unit, and the. The documentary was following the lives of these penguins throughout the entire season and juxtaposing that with the life and season of the people running the post office because the two seasons coincide with each other perfectly. Um, and and it's you know did, did how long did you spend and was it in was it an easy existence? I mean, it, one one assumes Antarctica is cold and miserable, but with all these penguins around, it probably is quite fun as well. Yeah, I mean, gosh, it's definitely an experience that I will treasure for the rest of my life. They, um, so I was there from 
November through to March. So I was there for basically five months. During that time, I was mostly living on a yacht, which was quite a basic existence. And then for about six weeks, I actually moved into the Nissan hut, which is the, um, the hut that the people who run the post office live in. And I lived fully with the team and got to work with the team in um, sort of sharing my passion for penguins and my knowledge of penguins with guests that would come ashore as well as actually even performing some stints in the post office and shop and helping out in the museum as well. Um, and in exchange, the team all chipped in and helped me a little bit with the filming. So it was um, good teamwork and a fantastic experience to be part of them. Now, we were really lucky because for most of the time, as I say, we were living in a hut or in the yacht. So um, you've protected with a roof over your head um, which is just as well because the biggest problem in Antarctica isn't the cold and snow that you might expect. It's actually the fact that there's always sunlight around. So you want a way to kind of shut out the light. During the summer season down there, it's light 24-7 or near enough, even at the latitude that Port Lockroy is at. It gets sort of dusky dark at, at best on the 21st of December. And um, it's pretty much it's pretty much light for a really long time. So you want to be able to, to close your eyes and find some darkness in order to sleep. But um, it, there were days when we had massive blizzards on the way down, for example, to Port Lockbury. I sailed from South America with Helen, who was the base leader that year, and Tudor Morgan, who was um, acting as our guide and opening up the post office for us and we we traveled down in the yacht and if it, it was so cold on the way down we hit 67 knot winds we had um such cold temperatures that my sleeping bag froze so the the end foot of my sleeping bag was absolutely frozen solid and when we first arrived at port lockroy the bay that's normally open so any visitors going to port lockroy will see an open bay and the zodiacs will take them in and ashore and able to visit the post office and the penguins of course for us when we got there that bay was completely frozen and we had to eventually drive the boat into the ice tie onto an iceberg wait a couple of days and once we were sure that the ice wasn't going anywhere and was safe enough for us to stand on we actually had to walk out over that sea ice which is always a little bit risque so i'd say that how, was, how that thick was, was the sea ice how thick was it um well at one point, Andrew, who was the cameraman I was working with, put his foot through, um, kind of up to his Goodness. mid thigh. Yeah, so it that, that's in terrifying. Places, <laughs> yes, it really, it really was terrifying. But you kind of see the penguins walking across it. And you think, oh, it's okay. But you know, the penguins. No, they live there. there. They know what <laughs> yeah, they're doing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, it wasn't particularly thick ice, but we we were really fortunate in so much as. As I say, we had shelter and yes, we did have a few, quite a few blizzard days where it was really, really, really cold. But also in summer now, down in Antarctica, it gets quite warm. So actually, the thing that I was most disappointed about was seeing rain down there. Because I really didn't kind of brace myself to see rain. But unfortunately, we had a few rainy days. So you're not the first person uh, to... You know, interact with penguins uh, on a visit to Antarctica. Probably everyone who's been to Antarctica has uh, had some um, amazing story with them, including the great explorers. So Robert Scott, Captain Scott, um, interacted with these animals, tried to study them, and he led a team to actually try and understand the history of the birds a bit more, didn't he? Yes, he absolutely did. And his his plan was to try and get to grips with these giant penguins that 
were reported down in Antarctica. And when I say giant penguins, I'm talking about the emperor penguins that still live down there. Now, um, Captain Scott was set on heading towards the South Pole, but he was um, very keen on science being a huge part of his expedition. And he brought along Wilson, who was his scientist and zoologist. And they also had a guy called Cherry Gerard, who actually bought his way onto the expedition, although he, he was a significant funder uh, or donor towards the expedition. And so they took him along as an assistant zoologist. And he subsequently wrote, wrote a book entitled The Worst Journey in the World, which is exactly this expedition. So whilst Scott was heading off into the South Pole, which to me sounds like the worst journey in the world, these guys went off. They were competing um, for the worst journey in the world, basically, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, yes. These guys headed off towards a place called Cape Crozier, which is where they were where they were trying to get hold of emperor penguin eggs. And the whole reason for this was they wanted to they thought that they could prove the evolution of penguins and indeed birds through getting hold of these eggs. So they set off on, on their own expedition and it does sound like a pretty hideous journey, I have to say, to put it lightly. But fortunately, whilst everybody else in the Scots team didn't make it back, these guys did come back successfully. They got their eggs sent back to the British Museum, but they, nobody ever looked at the embryos. You can see these eggs in the back drawers of the Natural History Museum, but no one's ever looked inside to check out the embryos. All of that work was for, for naught. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Hence, I think, well, they... why it's called the worst journey in the world. Penguins aren't all, all about his, the history of the continent, of course. Um, they, they give us, because they're, they're such important wildlife um, in the area, they give us quite an interesting sense of what's happening to the environment there. Um, right. Um, um, in the last century, as the world has changed all around, well, all, all the world has changed in terms of how um, human civilization has has grown. Um, the kind of um, the fossil fuels were burning. Obviously, climate change has become a huge issue. Antarctica has been relatively untouched by humans, but it's a, the, the effects of humans are very present. Um, what's it like for penguins down there right now? Right now, Antarctica's a big changing environment for penguins and for all animals that live there. Um, there are a lot of reasons for this, but specifically in terms of climate change, it's a really difficult place and fastly, fastly, fastly changing place as well. Penguins, I don't feel, can evolve fast enough to adapt to the changes that they're going to be facing in the next few years, whatever we do right now. I hate to be so bleak, but that is really the case. Um, I think there is hope, of course, um, and that there will be a lot done to mitigate the problems because we have to face up to something sooner or later. And I do hope that the peng that there'll be enough penguins around to to see that but for now it's not looking good you take for i mentioned earlier um the emperor penguins rely on sea ice currently in order to breed so um with the loss of sea ice you're going to lose emperor penguins now they are not just found that sorry they're found kind of around what we call the sort of eastern side and the eastern coast of antarctica and there's a tiny population on the eastern side of the peninsula. So these areas aren't quite so badly affected by climate change compared to some of the other areas of Antarctica. But even so, you're seeing huge 
losses of sea ice, which is where these penguins these penguins breed. But I think the biggest change and the biggest um, impact is being seen in the brush-tailed species of penguins, and these include the Gen 2 penguins that are found at Port Lockwood. So you've got three chinstrap species of penguin. You've got the Adelis, the Gen 2s, and the chinstraps. Now, the Adelis traditionally bred entirely on Antarctica on the continent proper, and they breed earliest in the season. They also rely on sea ice in order to feed because they feed more exclusively upon krill, which is found just in highest concentrations just underneath the sea ice. So they want to time their breeding season so that they've got the most food around and also they've got an ideal nesting spot. Chin straps have a slightly more plastic diet, and by that I don't mean literally plastic, I mean that they're able to feed on a slightly wider variety of food, um, but they still do rely on krill, albeit to a lesser extent. However, they are better adapted to climb higher up the cliffs and they nest further away from the edges of the shoreline. So they can breed where the snow's melted before anywhere else. So they're also breeding down on Antarctica. Gen 2s were never really found on Antarctica traditionally. They were found in the sub-Antarctic islands only. So if we look at what's happened, so the biggest impact in climate change in, in Antarctica can really be seen along the western peninsula of Antarctica. This is the area which is warming the fastest and in which the biggest differences in temperatures have been noted and recorded. And this is also where traditionally there have been a lot of Adelie penguins nesting and also chin straps. And increasingly now, since people have started to go to Antarctica more and more, we're also seeing an increase in Gen 2 penguins, and I'll explain that in a moment. For now, I'm going to explain the, explain the decline. Basically, from 1982 to 2017, which is the latest figures that I have here available in 2020, the number of breeding pairs of Adelis along this western peninsula and the South Shetland Islands, which the islands just off um, near where Deception Island is, another place where the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust has a base, um, the population of Adelis in those areas dropped by more than 70%. So they dropped from more than 100,000 breeding pairs to around 30,000. Wow. It's a huge decline. Ruth, the title of this podcast is whether penguins can predict the future or not. So are you telling me that penguins can predict the future? Absolutely, penguins can predict the future. What can we learn about how? Uh, what can we learn about the future of um, of Antarctica and the future of, of of our of our climate from the way that penguins are moving around and, and coping? I think, I think what we can learn from penguins for the future of our of our climate and certainly for Antarctica is that we have to be adaptable. I think we have to learn that there are problems and that climate change is most definitely real. I think there's been a long time where people have unfortunately discussed whether or not it's happening. And during that time, we've lost time. We've lost time to make a difference. We've lost time to make those changes. Now, I think everybody is in agreement. There's no ambiguity that this is an actual thing that's happening. And these penguins are real, true indicators of that. And I think this is our chance, this is a, sig a signal that we need to do something to make a difference. Absolutely no question. I think beyond that, we can look at the penguins, we can look at the gentes and we can think, hang on, 
okay, climate change is happening. What opportunities does that open open up for us? We don't necessarily have to take homes or things from other people and other species in order to take advantage of climate change, but we can take advantage of the warmer temperatures and the different areas, and we can use that for for the betterment of humankind and hopefully the protection of nature as well going forward. I'm, I'm optimistic that we can always find good in any situation. And I think if we use science and we keep watching wildlife and learning from it, then I, I really think that there's a lot to be a lot to be hopeful for. Um, is there anything that the listeners of this podcast can do to help in terms of the conservation of penguins or making sure that we keep them um, keep them safe during this time of great upheaval? Gosh, yeah, there's so much you can do for penguins. Um, primarily, I would say absolutely um, check out the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust website and learn as much as you can about the penguins around Port Lockroy and the work that those guys are doing to contribute towards science every year. They, the team there count penguins and they're looking at how tourism is having an impact on those numbers. Um, I'm going to give you a quick spoiler alert. Don't worry, there's no noticeable impact or I'm sure they'd be shutting down operations. Um, but um, beyond that, you can go onto a website called penguinwatch.org. How exciting is that? You can actually sit at home here in the UK or wherever you are in the world. You don't have to be actually in a place where there are penguins and you can contribute towards penguin science by looking at penguins. It's a genuine thing. And particularly if you're stuck at home, if it's a rainy day or you can't go out for any reason whatsoever, what better excuse than to go online and just watch penguin populations and count them and know that what you're doing, clicking on every penguin that you can see on a screen counts towards science. And I have to say, and I take this as a personal challenge, um, so far, this is open to any age group and it seems that children are better at it than adults. So um, I think we need to improve our, improve our technique adults. Um, I'll just finish the penguin chat with this one thing I learned recently, which is that uh, in Mandarin, if you translate the uh, Mandarin for a penguin, it translates directly into English as business goose. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but that's amazing. It doesn't <laughs> surprise me at all. There we go. I'm very pleased to have taught you something about penguins. <laughs> um, let me ask you finally, why does Antarctica matter to you? Okay, Antarctica matters to me firstly because it is the home, the primary home of the penguins, the species that I love more than anything else in the world. Um, I think to lose that home and that habitat would be a huge loss, not only for those penguins, but for all the species that have evolved around that ecosystem and also all the people that work so hard and do really love those penguins. I can't imagine growing up in a world where I couldn't look at a penguin and laugh and smile, whether that's on TV, in a cartoon or, or whatever. They symbolise so much for us. But, but beyond that, having been to Antarctica, and having witnessed the landscape, it really is a place that touches your heart and your soul. And you carry that with you wherever you go. I can't describe it. I couldn't ever paint a picture of Antarctica because it's full of so many different colours. Um, you imagine the whites of the ice and you imagine the blues of the ocean, but you don't realise the pinks and the purples and the kind of deep greys that the sky form. You don't picture the blues of the ice. And when I say the blues, there are so many more colours of blue than you could even ever, ever, ever find in any paint box whatsoever. And the sounds and the smells, and it's just so, so, so evocative that it means everything to me. It really does. It's the place that I dream about when I'm here.
Ruth, that was beautiful. Thank you very much indeed. Awesome. Thanks. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha. It was produced by Jessica Norman, with Ben Hewis as digital producer. Music was composed by Alec Hughes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A Voyage to Antarctica is part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's Antarctica in Sight programme, celebrating and reflecting on the past 200 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The Antarctica Insight programme is supported by the Arts Council England, the Garfield Western Foundation and the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. You can find out more at www.ukaht.org and you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we'd love to hear from you. Please tweet at or message us to tell us why Antarctica matters to you. Next time, I'll be talking to author Sarah Wheeler and Camilla Nicholl, Chief Executive of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, about some of the untold stories of women on the icy continent. See you next week. I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.